Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come to you, and we come empty and needy, um, asking for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we are those that have received so much from you uh, through the grace of Jesus already, and we ask for more this morning. Lord, would you, by the power of your Spirit, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, would you cause us to see the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ, to see the unparalleled love that you are and that you have shown us through Jesus, your Son. God, would you humble our pride? Would you unite us where we need to be united? Would you reconcile those that are at odds, Father? And would you cause Christ City Church to grow up as a unified church, as a church that, that spreads the glory and the goodness of God in your gospel uh, on the streets of Vancouver, wherever we go? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, unless you've been hibernating for the last 18 months, you are well aware that this is a divided world in which we live. There used to be a time in sermons where I'd have to try and provide all of these pieces of information and data sets to try to help the congregation see, oh yeah, yeah, you know, you're right, we're not actually all unified. It's not the case anymore. All I have to do is mention a handful of words, and you're right with me. I can mention COVID, Afghanistan, Canada's relationship with China, truth and reconciliation, political and social conflict, perhaps even these things seeping into your families. And I know many of you are creating even family conflict. Maybe you're not creating it, but it's there. It's difficult as you sort these things out. And it's true that from time to time in human history, we've managed as human beings to unite our various uh, differences, maybe because of a common enemy or because of a common cause. There's been moments of, of unification. But no matter how much progress we seem to make as society, it's easy to see the gaping chasms and that we still lack unity. And perhaps, perhaps maybe you're someone this morning that's even wondering, is there somewhere, just somewhere, is there something powerful enough to bring reconciliation and unity to a world that is at odds. This morning we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. And in this text, we'll see that Paul addresses a deeply divided people who, though they lived 2,000 years ago, 
were not that much different than us today. A deeply divided people. And we're going to hear Paul call them back from the brink of their division to something that he thought was powerful enough to achieve and to create unity in their midst. So if you're looking for something that can make a difference in this divided world, then I want you to listen. Listen to what Paul teaches us in this passage. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Corinth as he, number one, calls them to unity. Number two, speaks and writes about their disunity and the causes that were, that were causing it. And number three, how he reorients them to the power of the cross. So we're going to look at the call to unity, uh, the causes of disunity in Corinth, and the power of the cross. So we'll jump in right away with our first point and the call to unity in our first point. And as we do that, I want to explain something to you just about the book of 1 Corinthians and how it's structured. There's really, in um, the book of 1 Corinthians, there are two distinct parts. There's chapter 1, starting in verse 1, going all the way to uh, chapter 6, verse 20, where Paul's really responding to a report that he's heard about the disunity and division and the quarreling and the fighting that's happening at the church in Corinth. And the second half of the letter, going from uh, after what I just mentioned all the way to the end of the letter, is really Paul responding to a series of questions that he's received from the Corinthians' own letter to him saying, Hey, Paul, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And verse 10, the first verse of our passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, is really the thesis statement of that first half of Paul's letter. This thesis statement is this. Look at verse 10 with me. I appeal to you, brothers. I don't think I can read it better than Emelina. Emelina read it very well. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul wants the church in Corinth to be united. Where they are divided, he's calling them to unity. You see, he'd received this jarring report about their disunity. So the history of his relationship with the church in Corinth, just to remind you, is this. There was a time when he had spent 18 months in Corinth. He'd been there with these people and helping the church get started, and he left. And it was a church that looked very much maybe like even our own church, like Christ City uh, in Vancouver. Not a huge church, but, but growing in a decent size in, in a city that had a decent population. And then three years later, uh, he receives a report. But I want you to look and see kind of the, the movement of Paul real quick, because we're going to put up another slide here. I want you to see Paul's second missionary journey. There's the map. You got it. So he'd spent time in Corinth in AD 50 or AD 51. And then after his time in Corinth, he'd gone across the Aegean Sea to this place called Ephesus to start planting a new church. And it was there, it was there while he was at this work doing a new planting of a new church, working with these people, uh, that he receives the report from Chloe's people that the people that he'd left behind, that he loved in Corinth, that he was excited about as the Holy Spirit was working and creating this new community of life in a world of death, he hears that it's not going so well. Look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. 
Now, Chloe's people were likely her business associates. Right, so she would have been a businesswoman, probably in Ephesus, probably at the church in Ephesus. And because Corinth was this economic hub in, ancient, in the ancient world, and if you uh, didn't hear the message that I, I gave last week, the introduction to 1 Corinthians, I'd encourage you to do so because there's a lot of background information in that first message that will help to clarify things as we continue to go on through the series. But, but she'd gone or she'd sent her business associates to Corinth to conduct their business. And then they'd come back and it was so bad that they couldn't just ignore the horrors of the church in Corinth. They tell Chloe and then, and then Chloe comes and, and she tells Paul, I don't know what to do, but you need to know this is what's going on. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. And that word reported, it's probably not strong enough in English. The situation is probably Paul so shocked by what he hears that he needs some time to take it in to be convinced. You've probably seen those videos on YouTube uh, of, of maybe soldiers on a tour of duty that have come back home and they've, they've maybe surprised their loved ones. There's lots of tears. It's a very tear-jerking tear uh, moment, maybe a little bit more of an American moment for, for many of us than, than a Canadian moment. Um, but these, these beautiful reconciliations happen. And you have to imagine the situation with Paul a little bit differently. He's overseas, and rather than having this beautiful unification moment, he hears a report that maybe his, his sons have moved out in a half, and his wife is divorcing him. And it's just brokenheartedness. It's sorrow over the disunity that grieves Paul. He has to be convinced that it's really happening. And he's grieved. And as a father in the faith, Paul appeals to the Christian family he loves that they would be united. Again, look at verse uh, 10. I appeal to you, brothers. Or maybe a better translation would be, my dear family. My dear, I appeal to you, my dear family, inclusive of brothers and sisters in Jesus. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So Paul, first off in this text, he calls them to unity. But second, he, calls, uh, second, he explains the problem of their disunity. He helps us understand what's going on. And it was worse than mere division because, as we'll see in a moment, it was division for petty and selfish and prideful reasons. Look at our second point and the Corinthian disunity in 12 to 16. Paul said this, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. So what was going on in Corinth was that distinct factions were growing up in the church. And these distinct factions in the church were not so much theological divides as they were personality cults divides. They are factions over different leaders. And along with those leaders, perhaps factions over different practices and preferences and ministry, different teaching styles, perhaps different ministry focuses and things that they were doing in the city of Corinth. And all of these divisions are causing them to quarrel with one another, and in particular, to quarrel 
Who was better? Who was better? Who'd received the better baptism? Apollos baptized me. <laughs> okay? So stand down. You just got the Cephas baptism. No big deal. Right? And there's this division happening, boasting against one another in the church. The four people that he mentions the divisions over are, of course, Paul, who first preached to them. Apollos was a Greek convert, and he would have appealed to the Corinthians because they were used to these traveling philosophers, and he was a Greek convert who uh, we, we hear from the, the Word of God and also from church history was probably a really, really good preacher, someone who would have been familiar to them in terms of, of the way that he spoke, like maybe a Greek philosopher would speak in some ways. Um, you would have people like Cephas, who's really Peter. That's the apostle Peter. The one Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. And people are saying, well, if Jesus said that to Peter, I mean, I mean I, I'm following him. Or Jesus, you know, the especially spiritual folks, right? They're like, no, you know what? You guys are all wrong. We, we follow Jesus, right? And the implication, of course, is that none of you do. You guys think you follow Jesus? You don't. We've got the corner on the truth over here following Jesus in our little group. You have to imagine this happening here. You got to think about it. Imagine leaving Christ City for a little while, coming back three years later, and these factions growing up maybe around our own leaders here in the church, maybe around our elders. So I am, of course, an elder here at Christ City Church, uh, Doug um, Crystal in the back, the head of our biblical counseling ministry at, at Christ City Church, he is an elder, and Jonathan Ng is an elder. But imagine coming back, and how shocked you would be to see a Jonathan Ng group that had grown up, right? That had given themselves to camping in sprinter vans, to telling bad puns, and at the same time being very willing to help you with whatever need you might have. Or imagine the Doug Crystal group, sipping Coke Zeroes, stroking their cats, uh, reading in quiet corners as they build an army of biblical counselors for the good of Vancouver. Or imagine the brand group. Too nerdy for my own good at times, certainly too huggy. I think a lot of you just give me sidearm hugs because you want to keep me at a distance. Uh, Nature-loving, um, overly enthusiastic about whatever I happen to be interested in in the moment, as you know, and it changes quite often. And these distinct groups growing up in the church around these leaders. But what was going on in Corinth wasn't just alignment with different leaders, but alignment for one's own benefit with those leaders. It was a prideful, selfish alignment with these leaders. Because, of course, the Corinthians were these people that loved to be esteemed as wise. Right? They had this traveling TED Talks of philosophers that came to Corinth. I mentioned last week that, that Athens was a has-been university town, and Corinth was really the center of new philosophy. This is where you wanted to be. If, if you were going to hear the best stuff and be part of the newest wisdom, the newest knowledge, you wanted to be in Corinth. right? And, and to be associated with the person that was a, that person of knowledge, that person of wisdom, that was a big thing. You wanted to name drop their name. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know Apollos. Right? You wanted to be associated with them. After all, Corinth was a city built on an ancient system called the patron-client system. 
And what this was is this, this reality that those that had wealth and means in society would often help those that were not at that same place to, to rise to the ranks of society by forming a relationship with them and, and helping them out. So you wanted to be someone who hobnobbed with the best people to get noticed, to have this relationship that would benefit you and help you climb the ranks. It was competitive and self-interested. But they took all this selfish competition and pride into church. The Danish theologian Johannes Monk, he comments this. He says, their view of Christian leaders as teachers of wisdom really ministers to their own exaltation. It's self-interested. It is true that they boast about these great names, but only to boast about themselves. It's no wonder then that Paul exclaims in verse 13 with this absurd statement, is Christ divided? You church are the body of Jesus, singular, full of the one spirit of God, singular. Is he divided? Was Paul crucified for you? How insane is it that you mention my name and hold on to who I am as Paul? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? This is insane. And he thanks God that he didn't baptize anyone else other than these few people he mentioned so that there's not more cause for greater division in the church. Paul's upset. I think we need to hear this with the right ears. Paul is upset with gospel, Christ-honoring, Jesus-loving, unity-building, righteous indignation. I think we may have grown a little callous today toward church controversies. We've seen a lot of them. We've seen a lot of them in 2,000 years since the church began. But Paul's looking at this fresh. He's looking at it with the eyes that know what the church is supposed to be, united in Jesus Christ. And he's deeply concerned. You know, these divisions, they seem ridiculous to us, right? And especially my illustration about Doug and Jonathan and I. But this sort of division, it does happen in our own church, and it happens here in Vancouver all the time. So I want to ask you a question, just to kind of work this out a little bit. The question is this, how many churches are there in Vancouver? It's a trick question. Peter's got it right. It's a trick question because there's one church in Vancouver. There's one church in Vancouver and Jesus is the head, right? I think we often think of the churches in Vancouver and we think, well, Dave and Cheryl Coop at Coastal are the head. Or Alistair Stern at St. Pete's is the head or Matt Menzel at Westside, or Ken Shigematsu at 10th, or David Short at St. John's, or Norm Funk at Midtown, or Brett Landry at South, uh, Christ City, South Vancouver, or Jake Lefebvre at East Vancouver, or Jonathan and Doug and I here as the elders of Christ City. But it's not true. Jesus is the head of his church. But if we're honest, we do the same things that the Corinthians do. We do the same things, guys. We have big egos and we want to be associated with the things that make us look good at church. Things like churches with attractive people and attractive buildings. Worship ministries that are bumping. Outreach ministries that make us feel good about a particular cause. Branding that fits our modern aesthetic. Innovative methods of church growth or church plants, 
perfectly honed and well-delivered sermons, pastors whose names appear on books. Uh, I go to so-and-so's church. How wrong is that, by the way? I go to so-and-so's church, to name the, the, the pastor there? It's not his church. This is Jesus' church. We want to go to churches with kids' ministries and programs that will serve our convenience and meet our particular needs. And all of this reveals a problem in our heart that is the same as the problem that the Corinthians had. We have a selfish, pride-filled orientation to Jesus' church, Christ City. We have a selfish, pride-filled orientation to Jesus' church rather than a Christ-like, loving, and self-giving orientation to Jesus' church, which is what we're called to be as a people of Jesus. And this selfishness and pride, the selfishness and pride that puts leaders and ministries and ourselves over Jesus, this is the thing that will divide us. This is the thing that causes church splits and divisions. You know, I wish that everyone looking for a church would ask this question. I wish that we'd ask this question of ourselves. Am I here for some selfish reason? Or am I just coming to this church because what I want more than anything is to see Jesus? I want to see him lifted up and exalted. I want the glory of the gospel to shape my heart and soul and mind. I want to love Christ with my whole heart, soul, and mind and serve him. Serve him and give of myself in loving and serving others. Christ, that is the way that we should approach church. It's not okay to say, I'm just looking for a church that will meet my needs. That is not okay. It has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus. You see, a selfish orientation to your leaders or to your church will only bring division. But a Christ-like orientation shaped by his cross will bring life and unity and peace to this church and outward from this church into the neighborhood in which you live. Look at verse 17 in our last point, the power of the cross. Paul writes this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, Paul was an anti-baptism, right? He believed in it, but he was anti being used as a figurehead to promote people's pride. What he came to do was to preach the gospel, not with eloquence and catchy wisdom, not like those philosophers in that traveling circuit, but with the power of the Holy Spirit that was seen in his transformed way of life, giving of himself for the good of others. And this is where you need to listen up, because even if you don't care one iota about the unity of the church, even if you're not that interested in Jesus, maybe someone drags you here this morning, and you're here a little reluctantly. You need to listen up because this selfish, pride-filled orientation isn't just in the church. It's in us as human beings. And it brings division and destruction everywhere that we exist. It's bringing division and destruction into your life. The reality is that we do marriage for us and our selfishness, but create unity or create division with our spouses as a result. 
We bring this selfishness and pride into all of our relationships, including our jobs and our careers, as we try to achieve more and more power and wealth and comfort for ourselves, and in the same way are perpetuating the, the disunity and the harm and the hurt that is in our society as we live selfishly. We do romantic relationships for us. We do. Just look at modern dating apps. Look at modern dating apps. And don't let anybody tell you that it's okay to be an adult about these things, to use someone and abuse them and leave them, and that it's fine, and that adults will get over it. That's a lie. It's a lie. These things are destructive. We do parenting for us in our selfishness and our pride. And when our kids don't do what we want, they don't behave like we want in public, we take it out on them. Because it's not about their good. It's about us and how we look. And we build a whole society on the selfishness and pride, and it's destructive as we fill our cities and our neighborhoods with heartache. And for the selfish, proud like the Corinthians and like us, the message of the cross is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Christ City, there is good news. There is good news that God can bring unity and salvation and reconciliation and new life into this world through his gospel. The cross can transform our selfishness and make us selfless in love. Because the cross is the opposite of selfish human pride that divides it's the opposite of it. It is a perfect expression of selfless, divine love that brings unity. Let me tell you a little bit, a little bit about the cross. See, the good news about the cross is this. The good news is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus, Jesus Christ was born. Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully human. God himself become human. He came to earth not because he had some need that we would fulfill for him. He came to earth not because he needed our love to somehow complete him in his divine being. No, he did it because God himself in his very being is love. We read that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 1 John 4, 16. So when God became human, rather than assert himself over his creatures in power and pride like we do, he proved his character of love as he sacrificed himself for us in love. He showed us through Jesus that he is a God in his love, giving himself, giving himself, paying for the debt of sin that we could never repay, the, the damage that our destruction and pride and self caused, him covering that with the blood of Jesus. So he can welcome us into the overflowing abundance of his eternal being of love as a gift. Drawing us into his new creation as a gift and as a blessing. Look at Philippians 2 and look at the way that this triune, beautiful God shows us humility and self-giving love. And it starts, of course, with an encouragement to the church in Philippi. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit like what's happening in Corinth like happens here. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, look at the humility of Jesus. He was in the form of God. He was the triune God. The second person of the Trinity come to earth. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the cross shows us the character of God's love. The cross shows us a love that's the opposite of our pride and selfishness, giving of self for the good of others. And it's real. The cross is a power of God that is real in human history. It's not an intellectual concept that we have to just grasp, right? This is not behavior modification that comes through cognitive therapy. This is the miracle of the power of the Holy Spirit bringing life through the message of the cross to human beings. Because after Jesus was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven and he poured out his Holy Spirit on his church to fill them, not with ourselves, not with our selfishness and pride, but to push that out of us and to fill us instead with his own life, the spirit of Christ Jesus, that we'd be shaped to become like him. Not so we'd have fluffy, attractive, external things like good talking and good music and good programs in our churches to attract people, but that we'd have the life of Christ flowing through us and bringing a new creation. And it was happening. You know, in only a couple of hundred years after Jesus, the message of the cross lived out by the people of God. It shook Rome to its foundations. It transformed this world. It took a cruel and oppressive people and shaped them into a people that cared for the vulnerable and the hurting and the marginalized orphans and widows. It caused the church to grow and to care for those that were impoverished, that those were sick and dying. It took the world by storm. It became the DNA and the footprint, the foundation for our modern understanding of rights. So much so that even if you're not a Christian here this morning, you think Christianly. Your rights, your concept of caring for the vulnerable in Vancouver have all been shaped by the power of the cross of Jesus working through the gospel. And Paul's whole point is that this revolution in human history, it didn't come through eloquence. It didn't come through wisdom. It didn't come through sophists or stoics on the traveling circuit in Corinth or in Athens. It didn't come through Greek legislature or Roman laws. It came through Jesus Christ, through the message of the cross preached on the lips of fishermen who were uneducated and from this backwood province of Rome in Palestine. And it changed the world. You know, John Chrysostom, he's the father of the early church in the fourth century. He talks about the way that this message of the cross shows the power of God precisely because of how it grew through the original 12 disciples of Jesus, these uneducated men. Look at the quote with me. It's for these untrained and rude and illiterate men completely vanquished the wise and powerful and the tyrants and those who flourished in wealth and glory and all outward good things as though they had not been men at all. From whence it is manifest that great is the power of the cross and that these things were done by no human strength. The publican, that's an old word for a tax collector. The ignorant, the unlettered, coming from the far distant country of Palestine, 
And having beaten off their own ground, the philosophers and masters of oratory, the skillful debaters, alone prevailed against them in a short space of time. In the midst of many perils, the opposition of peoples and kings, the striving of nature herself, length of time, the vehement resistance of inveterate custom, demons in arms, the devil in battle array, and stirring up all kings and rulers and peoples and nations and cities and barbarians and Greeks and philosophers and orders and sophists and historians and laws and tribunals, various kinds of punishments, deaths innumerable and of all sorts. But nevertheless, all these were confuted. And gave way when the fisherman spoke. Just like the light dust which cannot bear the rush of violent winds. Christ City, Jesus' first apostles conquered because the spirit of Jesus indwelled them. Because their lives have been changed as they experienced the love of God through the cross. There is nothing that philosophy could do. There is nothing that anything else could hold a candle to, to this gospel. So what about you? What's shaping your life this morning? Is it the love of God for you that's seen in Jesus on the cross? Or is it something else? Is it your own self-interestedness? Is it your ambition, your desire for wealth and status and pleasure and comfort? My prayer for us is that every Sunday morning, we would come to this place hungry for one thing. That we as the people of Christ City Church would come hungry to see the glory of God and his love displayed for us in Jesus Christ on that cross. That our lives would be changed by it. So we'd go out into the streets of Vancouver and that when we would speak and share about the gospel, it would be powerful because it has transformed our lives. Because the Holy Spirit is seen breathing life in us. Because we live the things we say we believe in. So if you've never known the power of the cross, let me invite you to stop this morning with me. Let me invite you to stop and and take a moment. Confess your sins to the Lord. Agree with him about your pride and your selfishness. Turn to him for the forgiveness that he so freely offers you in Jesus. Receive his grace. Receive his love. He loves you in your messed up state. He loved you enough to send his son to die on the cross, to take your place, the punishment that you deserve, and to give you his love. There's no power like the cross of Christ to transform our selfish and proud hearts and to unite us together as worshipers of Jesus. And every one of us this morning needs this reorientation around the cross. So let me ask you this as we conclude. Do you long for a changed life? Do you long to be changed? Then look to Jesus, who through the cross has been transforming sinful human hearts for millennia. Do you long for unity and joy? then look to Jesus who through the cross reconciled God to man and man to man and human beings with human beings, creating one church in Jesus, causing you to live as the people you were created to be in the love, in relationship with the God that you were made for. Do you long 
to labor at something that will last beyond your next paycheck and your retirement plan and the little bit that you're chipping away at in life in Vancouver. Then look to Jesus who through the cross has invited you to be part of his new creation, who has created you anew as part of his new creation, to work for things that will last for eternity for the glory of God. Do you long for a deeper spirituality than what you're experiencing? Then look to Jesus who through his cross has poured out the Holy Spirit of God on us so that right now God indwells us. Right now his comfort is with us. He is present empowering us to labor and to work with him and for his glory. May the cross of Christ shape everything in our lives. So we become exactly the people of our confession that we read this morning. Agents of reconciling love in this broken world. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning. And we confess that we are a proud and selfish people. And Lord, we're going to confess as well that most of us are okay with that. Lord, would you, would you begin a, a work of convicting us? Lord, of showing us our sin. Showing us the price of our sin was you, was God uh, becoming incarnate in the second person of the Trinity to die for us. Lord, would you show us that for sinners like us, you meet us not with, with anger and punishment, but with an offer of grace at the cross. Would you help us to see your love poured out for us through Jesus? Father, would you change us for that love? And would you send us out full of that love to be a church that loves one another, that serves selflessly, giving ourselves for the glory of Jesus? We ask these things in his name. Amen.